This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for July 21st, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. Our AI Summer continues with a look at how to make artificial intelligence understand and translate the thousands of languages that don't have large online sources of text and audio. Freelance science writer Sandy Bravindran joins me to discuss a project dedicated to spurring growth in machine learning for African languages. Also this week, Eucharist Kuhn talks about using machine learning to measure legs, arms, all kinds of bones from x-rays stored in the UK biobank. We talk about how these measurements of body proportions can be linked to genes, evolution, and disease. And in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, Director of Custom Publishing, Erica Berg, talks with Aisha Akhtar, CEO of the Center for Contemporary Sciences, about how a recent law and advances in technology are clearing the way for animal testing alternatives. In another story from our special issue on AI that came out this month, freelance science writer Sandeep Ravindran wrote a story on a massive volunteer effort to ensure that AI understands all languages or as many as we can make happen. Hi, Sandeep. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. This is such an interesting story. You know, I actually want to get into the nitty gritty right away, but let's start at the top. There's a lack of artificial intelligence that understands what you call low resource languages in your story. What exactly does that mean? You know, I know AI for English exists and Spanish, but maybe some other languages are not getting the same treatment. That's exactly right. So I'm actually from India. And so I was already well aware that the Google Translate or Siri, you know, Alexa, these things don't necessarily work for a lot of languages. Those are considered low resource languages, so they lack the data sets and the um, tools that you would use to help AI understand them. Now, when you say lack data sets, do you mean they haven't been collected or there just hasn't like an official effort to kind of create something that a machine learning model could be applied to? Both. So in large part, for many of these languages, nobody's been collected to data sets. So when I say data sets, we're talking about text uh, and in for things like speech recognition, like annotated speech. And they just don't exist in many cases. Or when they do exist, they're not very good data sets. They're not very useful for actually training these AI models. From what I understand from your story, there are thousands of languages. And right now, AI is only 
you know, really have a grasp on just a very tiny subset. Why is it so hard to come by the resources, the data training sets that are needed to train AI on other languages? You know, what are some of the hurdles there? You know, there's estimated to be about 7,000 or so languages in the world, and 2,000 of them are just in Africa. You know, Africa is a huge continent. They have 2,000 languages of their own, and they're all low resource. They all lack data sets and the tools. And what are considered high resource languages is basically, you know, English, a handful of other European languages like French, German, and Spanish, and Chinese. That's basically the only ones the main languages that we actually have data sets for. And that's a combination of a couple of things. One is a lot of AI models or the data sets for these models are created by scraping the web. And the web is primarily English and a handful of other languages. So if you're looking for African languages or or even a lot of South Asian or Southeast Asian languages, you're just not going to find a lot of it on the internet. I mean, the other thing is, it's an aftermath of colonialism for a lot of these countries. When, you know, you had like, especially countries with, where the British took over, they discouraged, in many cases, speaking and writing in, in native languages and kind of made the official language English. And so all the government documents and legal documents for hundreds of years might be only in, in English. And if people are discouraged from writing in, in their native languages, you also just don't have as much published text in, in those languages. So Google can basically use everything that's ever been published in English as a data set to train its models. But that level of published text just doesn't exist in, in many of the world's languages. Your story actually centers mainly on what's happening with a very large project in Africa. Can you talk a little bit about where this came from and how, how it's working, you know, basically across many, many countries and languages? My story is about what's called the Masakane Project, which started in 2019 when Jade Abbott and Laura Marchinas, they realized that there really weren't a lot of data sets to train AI in African languages. Jade says she, she went to one of these big sort of AI conferences back in 2018 or 2019, and they both published a paper about the need for AI research in um, African languages. But then Jade was at this conference and she realized she was one of three (laughs) researchers from the entire continent of Africa there. Wow. So, you know, she realized this was not something that she could tackle or or she and a handful of others could tackle. And so that sort of gave uh, birth to this massive volunteer effort where they tried to make this a problem that a lot more people were working on. You know, at the moment they have, they're estimated to have about 2,000 volunteers from 30 different countries, all sort of working together to try to make AI be able to work on, on African languages. We should talk a little bit about why it's so important that this happen. It's not just that everybody wants to be able to tell their phone what to do orally, <laughs> but we also mm-hmm. it also represents who these people are. There's a lot of really important reasons for this to happen. Yeah, no, I mean, language is, is such an integral part of who we are, you know, as a sort of as people, it sort of represents our, our culture. And I mean, you have, say, for example, like a country like Nigeria, where the majority of people don't speak English, you're leaving these people are sort of cut off from not just sort of the internet and, and tech, but also English in many cases is the language of, of government, of law, of 
So you're you're cut off from so many jobs and opportunities and, and sort of educational opportunities. Having the ability to sort of translate English to your native language and back can help you like, access some of these opportunities and services that you're cut off from otherwise. Is there also a preservation aspect to this? Yes, in large part due to the effects of colonialism, many languages, you know, not just Af- in Africa, but also a lot of indigenous languages all around the world, they're dying out, really. I mean, there are fewer and fewer speakers of these languages. They're not being used as widely because they're not sort of official languages. And so the hope is that if you're able to develop AI tools that can help teach people their own native languages in many cases, you could preserve and also revitalize these languages. I mean, Jade Abbott talks about a lot of even Masakane volunteers who maybe are studying abroad or doing their research abroad. They can't talk to their own parents often in their native languages. Like the parents talk, you know, in their native languages and they have not grown up learning these languages. And so these tools could help bridge that gap. Yeah. Let's get back to Masakani then. You know, this is a really big effort. And you talk about, you know, the number of volunteers, you know, what are their roles? How is this coming together? In large part, it's, you know, it's a lot of academics and, and AI researchers or people interested in AI research. Masakani has actually had a, a major role in helping volunteers who are interested in, in AI translation research sort of get involved in the field. You know, they have mentors within the program who can help people take on projects or or participate in, in some of these projects. And then there's also a lot of volunteers who are just interested in linguistics or perhaps just interested in preserving their own languages. So because they also need to generate a lot of the data, you need people who will translate text from English to their own language or will annotate speech from their language to English and back. So there's just a lot of volunteers, you know, on the programming, coding, sort of AI research side, but also just people who are interested in their languages and want to help in these projects aimed at their languages. One of the things that really excited me about this story was this this kind of nitty gritty detail that I was excited to talk about, which is this is a real challenge. If you don't have millions of pages of text to incorporate into your training set, you have to kind of be creative and come up with solutions to get this result where it, you know, the AI is able to understand and translate and do other kinds of things without kind of having this almost infinite resource that maybe English would have. So can you talk about some of the ways that they're trying to overcome that limitation, you know, where the data sets just aren't there to train the AIs? That's a great point. Obviously, they don't have millions of hours of audio and and terabytes of data that Google or Meta can use. And so They've been using this participatory research approach where they basically get volunteers from communities that speak these languages and try to generate smaller but higher quality data sets rather than just sort of large but not very high quality data sets you get from scraping the entire internet. So what that means is they actually went out in some cases, went out to a community that spoke a particular language, had these workshops with them where they had native speakers and they started off with some seed words. They then workshopped those into sentences that was actually important for that particular community, that they cared about translating this. And then were able to use those, the data sets comprising those sentences to train their models. Another thing that comes out of this is that once you train a model on a certain language, 
you can use it for another language, but how closely related those languages are is important to making that work. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So when you think about creating models for 2,000 different languages, that sounds really daunting. Yeah. But what Masakani researchers were able to find was that by using a model trained on a similar language, either sort of geographically similar or linguistically similar, they could actually get really good results. And that worked much better than using a model trained on English, for example. The hope is that, you know, if you could identify, say, 20 great donor languages, you could train models for the remaining languages just using those. What happens next as these models are developed, as these languages are more accessible to AI? Are they going to roll out onto people's iPhones? Not quite yet. I mean, the project only started in 2019, and they've had a lot of success creating, firstly, data sets, creating a pipeline of AI researchers who speak a lot of different African languages. But in terms of consumer tools, there's still a ways to go, partly because actually creating a tool for research is a lot easier than create a tool that has to work for consumers. Jade gave this example of they had this Again, speaking to the lack of text, one of the early translation tools used mostly Jehovah's Witnesses text as its data set. And that worked well as a proof of concept for their research. But it also, because of its data set, it would translate words like Canada to Canaan, which, you know, isn't ideal if you're trying to roll it out to the public. Are there other places in the world that are following this model now that this huge effort in Africa is starting to see some success? Around the same time as Mazakane started, or perhaps even earlier, there have been other projects, particularly in, there's one famous one called the Papa Reo project among the Maori community in New Zealand. And the Mazakane project seems to have inspired a number of other projects in the global south, working on indigenous languages in the Americas and similar projects in, in Southeast Asia. I think these early projects showed, firstly, that this sort of thing could be done. You could organize these huge volunteer efforts and create good models for your languages despite not having these huge data sets and these huge computational resources. And so from what I understand, they're now all sort of collaborating and talking to each other to sort of work collectively to help create AI models for all of these different languages. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much, Sandeep. Great. Thank you. Sandy Bravindran is a freelance science writer based in Bethesda. You can find a link to the story we talked about and the rest of the AI special issue at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Eucharist Kuhn about body proportions and what we can learn about our evolution by looking at the genes related to our arm and leg lengths. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This week in science, Eucharist Kuhn and colleagues used a huge set of x-ray images from the UK Biobank to learn about body proportions, 
how things like arm length, leg length, or torso relate to each other and to height. And also, they looked at links from these body proportions to genes and to disease. Hi, Eucharist. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. What made you decide to do this type of analysis, to look at tens of thousands of skeletons and compare the length of their legs and arms? Yeah, so our lab was really inspired by the 500th anniversary of the death of Leonardo da Vinci and his work, The Vitruvian Man, which reflected his conception of the ideal ratios that make up the human form. And as human geneticists, we were really inspired to examine and understand the genetic basis of these skeletal proportions. Let's first start with the bones that you looked at. These are x-rays from the UK Biobank. Can you describe a little bit about this data set, you know, how they get in there and how many there were, that kind of thing? Sure thing. So the UK Biobank, they've recruited over 500,000 people to take part in this study. But for x-ray imaging, they invited around 50,000 people. And they took a variety of x-rays, including their hips, their knees, their spines, but they also got full body x-rays for all 50,000 of these individuals. And this was the data set that we used. You actually needed to pull out these x-rays of the whole body and then make measurements on so, so, so many images. And this is where machine learning comes in. How did you take advantage of what that has to offer to get the answers you were looking for? There's been a lot of advances in computer vision algorithms through machine learning, which enabled us to, first of all, recognize which x-ray images were full body x-ray images. Beyond that, the landmarking itself to, uh, I guess, phenotype these full body x-rays. So we employed something known as transfer learning, where these models have been trained on regular images. The landmark model in particular, it has been trained on over 100,000 annotated images where people have annotated joints on images of people in day-to-day activities. And through something called transfer learning, we added an additional 300 manually annotated images of these full body x-rays. And the model is kind of able to learn from these 300 annotated images like, oh, this is where the elbow joint is. This is where the hip joint is. And then you are able to apply that on the remaining like 40,000 or so images that we had. Once you have this set of measurements, you know, lengths of various parts of the bodies, you decided to focus on a ratio instead of the absolute length when you were making these comparisons or, or making these conclusions. You know, why did you decide to do that? Since height has been so well studied, especially in genome-wide association studies, and many of our skeletal lengths are so inherently correlated with overall height, we wanted to regress height out of our phenotypes and discover novel nucleotide positions associated with body proportions. So that's why we went with ratios. We'll get to the genetics, we'll get to the disease, but first let's just, you know, did you learn anything surprising or new about the way bodies are put together? One of the first observations we made was that it looks like human height is mainly driven by leg length and not torso length. And we also found that limb lengths were highly correlated across each other, but body width and long bone lengths were less correlated. But if you have long legs, you're likely to have long arms as well. Yes. The one that I picked out that I thought was really interesting is if you do have longer legs and longer arms, that extra length tends to come from the lower limb or the limb that's farther away from the body. Yes, that's correct. I was surprising to me because I kind of know tall people have long legs, but I didn't know that 
long limb people tend to have longer, you know, forearms or longer calves. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Is there anything else that popped out out at you as surprising about like looking across all these people and the way they're proportioned? The other point that I really like to stress is that long bone lengths were highly correlated with each other, but uncorrelated with body width, suggesting that the genetics behind what drives widths versus what drives long bone lengths kind of vary. Right. So you can have a tall kind of bulky person bulky in terms of like a wide pelvis and wide shoulders. And that's not necessarily, it's not like wider shoulders go with longer arms necessarily. Not necessarily. That's right. Okay. Really interesting. One of the advantages of the biobank, besides just many, many, many people's data being in there, is that it has kind of a suite of information. So for example, genetic information, disease history that help make more connections. Let's get to the genetics part here. You know, what did you find out about the genes associated with the body proportion measurements that you took? We took some of our body proportions and we ran genome-wide association studies using data from the UK Biobank. That is, we looked at the various differences in people's genomes and found which ones contributed to which skeletal proportion phenotypes. One of the first things we found was that Many of the genes that are associated with the loci that we found in our genome-wide association studies were enriched in skeletal development and skeletal system morphogenesis. And a lot of these genes were also associated with abnormal mouse skeletal phenotypes, and some were even associated with rare human skeletal disease. That really showed to us that we're in the right ballpark here, that we are finding genes associated with skeletal development. Right. So you're able to kind of partition your data set based on these proportions and then say, oh, we can see changes in genes associated with having these different phenotypes. Right. Yeah. You also found some evidence that these regions of the genome that you focused in on have some evidence of evolutionary acceleration. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we wanted to carry out an evolutionary analysis as the skeletal proportions differ greatly between humans and great apes and are so fundamental to bipedalism. So we carried out an evolutionary analysis by basically doing an enrichment analysis of our genes for lying in regions of the genome that are known as human-accelerated regions. That is, they've undergone much more mutations in humans than they have in any of our previous ancestors. And so we found that genes related to specific skeletal proportions such as arm to leg ratio or hip width to height ratio, these genes were more heavily enriched in these regions of the genome that have gone human-specific mutation. And that's really interesting because the two that stood out the most are ones that we see that are so strikingly different between humans and the great apes, specifically arm to leg length, as we've transitioned from knuckle-based walking to upright walking. Yeah, we don't need our arms anymore for that, so... We don't need them to drag around on the ground. That's right. (laughs) Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about the disease aspect of this. You found specifically the link between, you know, some of these results and osteoarthritis, which is a super common form of arthritis. How did that show up in your data and your results? We found that there was locality of disease with specific skeletal proportions. That is an increased femur to height ratio or an increased tibia to height ratio and an increased tibiofemoral angle, all related to the knee joint, they were associated with increased risk of knee osteoarthritis and knee pain. Additionally, we found that 
increases in hip width to height proportion were also associated with hip OA and hip pain. And these results don't bleed over to each other. That is, increased hip width is not associated with knee OA and increased leg ratios are not, not associated with hip OA. So we're finding some specificity in our analysis that locally these proportions matter to local disease. And it's interesting because it's known in the literature that hip OA and knee OA tend to occur in the absence of each other. And this is kind of showing us why. Oh, so it's interesting, though, that you did find support from the literature that these different proportions are linked with osteoarthritis and then also they're independent of each other. Like when you see hip, you don't necessarily see knee. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's very cool. Getting back to the data set here, the UK Biobank, you know, it's a huge sample, 500,000 and 40,000, 50,000 that you used here for these x-rays. You know, it's big, but is it diverse? Is there enough in here for us to be able to say something universal about humans? Or do we need to look at other other ancestries, other locations, get more data? Right. So that's a great question. So while the UK Biobank is highly diverse and has people from all backgrounds, in our study, we had to limit it to only white British individuals as to not introduce any bias from different genomic ancestries into our model. So I would not say that this can be widely applied across all groups. Yeah, and it's definitely a model for how to, you know, take a big data set like this and turn it into information about human health and genetics. Mm -hmm. Another selection choice that you made here was to look at adults, 40-year-olds to 80-year-olds. There's no kids in this data set. Would that be an interesting path to take to look at how the proportions in children, you know, change over time or, you know, vary kid to kid? I think certainly that would be a very interesting study. I think the most interesting you could do thing you could do with that would be a longitudinal study if you could measure someone as they go through puberty and how their body proportions change over time. But the UK Biobank just only has data from their recruitment cohort was just people from ages 40 to 80. So that's the data that we're working with. What are some of the the different routes that you're going to go down now that you've found all these different genes, you found all these different phenotypes, you know, what are you going to look at next? Our study has identified all these genes associated with skeletal proportions, and a majority of them were associated with mouse models, mouse models indicating that these have effect on skeletal phenotypes. But we found a subset of genes that didn't have any literature associated with them. So we are currently working with another lab to generate CRISPR-based zebrafish knockouts of these genes to investigate their function and skeletal development. Cool. All right. Thank you so much, Eucharist. Yeah, no problem. Eucharist Kuhn is a PhD student at the University of Texas, Austin. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. After this, we have a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office. We hear about how a new law and advances in technology are clearing the way for alternatives to animal testing. The views expressed in custom segments are those of the guest and do not reflect policies of science or AAAS. Hello to our listeners and welcome to this sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office and brought to you by Michelson Philanthropies. I'm Erica Berg, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Aisha Akhtar, a leader in the fields of animal ethics and neurology. 
we'll be having a conversation about how a recent law and advances in technology could someday soon allow scientists to develop a new drug without lab rats. Thank you so much for joining, Dr. Akhtar. Thanks so much for having me here, Erica. Before we get started, I wanted to share that I recently had the chance to catch up with Dr. Gary Michelson about how this new law came to pass. In addition to the Michelson Medical Research Foundation, he established the Michelson Center for Public Policy, which advocates for increased funding for biomedical research, equity in higher education, and animal cruelty prevention. Working with federal officials, he helped secure the passage of the FDA Modernization Act 2.0, which was signed into law in 2022. Here's what Dr. Michelson had to say about this historic achievement. What made this particular piece of legislation truly remarkable that you had Rand Paul and Cory Booker, who are sort of the bookends on the political spectrum, coming together in recognition of how important this was. And then I think the, the more remarkable part that nobody believes when I tell them is it actually passed on a unanimous vote. When you tell anybody it was a unanimous vote in that year, they go, no, it never happened. It's always nice when government works, isn't it? Aisha, my first question for you is about the FDA Modernization Act 2.0. My question is, what does that law modernize and why? Currently, the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, requires that all new drugs and vaccines have to be tested on two animal species before the FDA allows it to move on to be tested in human clinical trials. And so that was actually a regulation that evolved from a law called the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938. The FFDCA of 1938 was in response to a couple of problems that happened. There was a, a sulfur drug, an antibiotic drug, that the company wanted to make it sweeter so it was more palatable for children. In order to make it sweeter, what the company did was they add ethylene glycol, which is antifreeze. That led to more than 100 deaths, many of them or most of them in children. Basically, the sulfur drug situation led to this requirement that all new drugs and vaccines have to be tested on animals before they can be tried in humans and approved for the market. So the Food and Drug Modernization Act 2.0 basically updates that Depression-era law by saying, yeah, if you want to do animal testing, you can, but you can also use other more cutting edge, more innovative and more modern techniques in place of animal testing if you want. So it catches up the law to the science. From a purely scientific perspective, what are the downsides of using animal models to stand in for humans? We now know that despite the animal testing, more than nine out of 10 drugs and vaccines that pass animal tests end up failing when tried in humans. There are many things that we share with the biology of a rat and a dog and a non-human primate, including chimpanzees, but it's the differences between our biology and the biology of these other animals that are causing the problem. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit now to talk about the alternatives. I've done a bit of reading about the technologies that are currently in development as replacements for animal models, and they sound like they're all straight out of science fiction. Can you tell me about the leading animal replacement technologies? Let's start with 
organoids. Sure. Uh, I know they sound so fascinating. And if you look at them, at the images and the videos of them, they're, they're quite cool. Organoids are basically miniature organs that you grow in the lab using, for example, adult stem cells. And they mimic the physiology of that actual organ. They mimic the function, the biology of that actual organ. You can use them also to test whether a drug is going to be safe in that organ and whether a drug will work in that organ. Another technology I read about is called organ on a chip or animal on a chip or human on a chip. What can you tell us about those? Right, so the organ on a chip goes even further than the organoids because it's in a setting that mimics the actual setting of the organ in the human body. So a lung on a chip actually breathes and functions like a major part of the actual lung in the human body. So one day, what's gonna happen, Erica, is that a researcher is going to be able to take my cells and create my organs on a chip and integrate them to create an Aisha body on a chip. You're going to be able to take your cells and create an Erica on a chip so that they can use your body on a chip to actually screen drugs to see if they're actually going to be safe in your body and if they're actually going to work against any of the diseases you may experience. Erica on a chip. Someday. So the other bucket of technologies I was reading about, sort of away from the wet lab and into a computer, what can you tell me about how far we've come in the uses of virtual cells or virtual organs, virtual animals? Where are we with those technologies and how do they work? You can call it a digital twin or a virtual patient. And a virtual patient basically is capturing data from multiple sources, which could be population data, clinical trial data, electronic health records, and basically combines multiple different types of testing methods and data sources. What is the idea for how these technologies would actually be incorporated into the drug development process to replace animal models? So right now, many of these techniques are being used in the drug development process, but sort of alongside animal testing, which quite honestly doesn't make sense because these other methods can so far outperform the animal tests and be such better predictors of human outcomes than the other tests. I think what's gonna happen is that as the field becomes more and more comfortable and confident and experienced with using these newer methods, eventually they will replace the use of animals totally. And they will be used to predict whether a drug will be safe and effective in humans. As a matter of fact, we can actually use these technologies one day to perform human clinical trials that in the lab. What are the hurdles that are preventing scientists from using these technologies to replace animal and, I guess, human trials as well? Regulatory agencies still require animal testing. So even though that law, the FDA Modernization Act, does not require animal testing for drug development, it still leaves the decision-making, ultimately, at the hands of the Food and Drug Administration. There's regulatory barriers and there's funding barriers. There's also publication barriers. I've heard from numerous scientists that are working on these more advanced technologies that when they try to publish their results, 
they get kickback from the scientific publication saying, no, we want to also see these results in animal experiments. So there's this entrenched cultural barrier that exists within the scientific fields and within scientific journals as well. So all of those barriers still need to be removed. Aisha, are there success stories from other industries that you can talk about and how they reduce their dependence on animal testing? Yeah, Erica, that's a great question. So, you know, so many times people say, oh, but we cannot replace animal testing. Well, that's what the cosmetic industry used to say 20, 30 years ago. It took the work of advocates, animal protection advocate organizations that forced the cosmetic industry to change. Animal testing is hardly done now for cosmetics. Aisha, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? We're running low on time, but I just wanted to give you one more opportunity to share insights with us. I think, Erica, I just think, you know, thank you so much for having this conversation, for talking about such a needed topic. I would just add that I'm really, truly excited about where we're headed in medical science. Aisha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. These are indeed exciting times to live and to hope that the next big life-saving drug may not need to come at the expense of animals. To learn more about the work that Dr. Akhtar and her colleagues are doing, please visit contemporarysciences.org. Our thanks to Michelson Philanthropies for making this conversation possible. And thank you to Chris Connor for audio support. And finally, thank you, dear listener, for spending this time with us. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.